0: It's time to face the music. It's your day in court with a people's lawyer, Bruce Hagan, and attorney Ray Giudice.
1: Your day in court with renowned lawyers, Bruce Hagan and Ray Giudice on Extra 106.3. My name is Tug Cowart. We're going to talk about the Alex Murdoch trial here in the first segment. But first, I want to introduce you to the fellows and get you the best representation if you ever run into a legal issue. We'll start with Bruce Hagan. Bruce, what's up, man? How do folks get a hold of you?
2: Great to be here today Um, doing this from my palatial office uh, just down the street from the DeKalb County Courthouse in beautiful Decatur, Georgia. Easy to find me, uh, hagen-law.com. That's H-A-G-E-N. My name is a little bit easier to to spell than Ray's name, yet people still misspell it. So it's uh, H-A-G-E-N, hagen-law.com. You can email me, bruce, at hagen-law.com. You can call me on my cell. 404-202-2233. Heck, if you're in the Decatur area, I'm right across the street from Decatur High School. Just knock on our door. It's a beautiful old house. Come get a tour and introduce yourself. Happy to meet any of our listeners.
3: Ray? Thanks, Ray. Ray. G-I-U-D as in David, I-C-E. Attorney at law here in Roswell now. And uh, 404-964-4185 is my cell, Ray G. Law is my website. Ray G. Lawyer will take you there, too. We're here in Roswell. Unlike Decatur, you don't have to wear brick and stocks to come visit me. (laughs) We're outside the perimeter and, and relatively sophisticated up here now and enjoying the heck out of Roswell.
1: That's awesome news. If you ever need help, make sure you reach out to Ray and Bruce, because even if they don't work in the field of legal issues that you've run across... They can get you in touch with the best representation. They know all the lawyers here in town and throughout the state and uh, in some cases throughout the country. So you will get great help if you lean on these guys. Biggest story of the week, Alex Murdaugh sentenced to life in prison for both the murder of his wife and his son. A risky move, putting him on the stand, which did not prove to uh, help him out whatsoever, Bruce.
2: Yeah, it was certainly a risk to um, put the defendant on the stand given everything surrounding him and the opportunity to cross examine him and um you know ray has had to counsel people frequently in criminal trials about why despite their belief that they're the most important part of the case uh he's not going to allow them to testify um so you know tactically they may have felt that they had no choice but to have him testify but you know it's a pretty interesting approach basically to say that yes i did lie to investigators Yes, I did lie to my former partners about stealing all this money from them. Uh, Yes, I did lie about where I was at the time of the shooting, and I was only discredited here in this courthouse in front of this jury when the tape was played where you could hear my voice um, at a location where I said I had not been. Yes, I did lie about the clothes I'm wearing, but I'm telling the truth when I tell you that I did not murder my wife or child. You know, that, that's a tough uh, defense when it's like, ignore all those lies and believe me about the one thing here that is obviously the critical issue.
3: Yeah, it is the toughest decision one has to make in a criminal trial is whether to you allow your client to take the stand or not. Now, of course, under our system of justice, someone charged with any crime is not required to take the witness stand and testify. They can be called by the state, by the prosecutor, and we now now call defendant Smith to the stand. Wait, he doesn't want to take the stand, ladies and gentlemen of the jury. You can't do that as a prosecutor. You can't comment in your closing argument that the defendant failed to take the stand. Uh, And the jury will be instructed that every defendant has a constitutional right not to take the witness stand. And you, ladies and gentlemen, the jury shall not hold that against them in your decision-making, which basically is nonsense because they will. (laughs) So this is the hard decision. Um, It sort of depends for me. If I'm doing a DUI jury trial and there's a 45 or 50 minute videotape and audio played or body camera to the ladies and gentlemen, the jury often I won't have my client testify because essentially they just did testify via the videotape. I may in fact replay portions of that tape in my defense portion of the case without my client taking the stand. Now, in this case, uh, the other problem you have is when you represent a a well-educated person, a seemingly intelligent guy who thinks he's the smartest guy in the room, master of the universe, Big, big swing, and you know what, uh, to try to get him not to take the witness stand is almost impossible, and you're going to put your advice in writing whether you believe he should or shouldn't. A judge outside the audience of the jury is going to say, uh, Mr. Defendant, you do not have to take the witness stand. Is this your decision to do, yes or no? And have you discussed this thoroughly with your counsel? Yes, I have. Do you need any more time to discuss it with your counsel before you take the witness stand admit to lying and be cross-examination by that prosecutor who's got blood coming out of his ears because he can't wait to tear you up and that's usually what happens uh, so in your
2: days in your
3: days as
2: a prosecutor, would you prepare the case two different ways one one in anticipation of the defendant not testifying and one in anticipation that they would testify?
3: Yeah, that's a great question, Bruce, because you never know uh, now, You sort of get a feel for that during the litigation, maybe pre-trial motion, the demographics perhaps of the defendant. Uh, Maybe their counsel has sort of tipped you off where they're going. If you've watched the video, you see someone who can't help. But uh, what's the – is it Ron Stone, the comedian, says you have the right to remain silent but not the ability to remain silent? (laughs) right. (laughs) You do have to factor in, but you can't. You have to be very cautious in your opening statement as a prosecutor. And you can't say, "Now wait, wait, you, what? Just you wait till I get him on the witness stand." You can't say that. That's a mistrial right off the bat, and that may be a, a mistrial with prejudice, meaning you don't get a second trial. You have you have stepped in it when you know you should not have. Uh, so yes, you do have to prepare. Uh, both ways you have to prepare your opening you have to prepare your closing and you have to be ready to cross-examine the defendant because you don't know if that's going to be the the defense's only witness first witness third witness or last witness generally if the defense is going to put up their client as a witness it will almost always be the last witness in their case in the defense case and
2: by the way that was not the case here i think the
3: last witness they put up was, was the defendant's brother. And that's because, that was which was a wise decision because the brother, you know, was just, we had a big tub of love and he was just smearing it all over the courtroom. Yeah. And he couldn't feel, you know, sympathetic. I, you know, you kind of wish that was your client if that was, if you were the defendant. But generally, and, and you're right here, Bruce, obviously, but the last question to the, your client is, i Mr. Defendant. I want you to look every one of these jurors right in the eye and answer the following question. Did you murder your wife and your son? No, I did not. And then you sit down case. We rest, you know, of course still subject to cross exam, but you let that hang in the courtroom for as long as you can.
2: Yeah, it's a good point. You know, interestingly too, I saw that uh, one of the jurors was dismissed. Um, we talk about the sacrifices folks make to um, perform Public service of jury duty, but especially in a high-profile case, but even in just a run-of-the-mill, uh, typical, you know, simple case, um, jurors are not allowed to do any independent research. They're not allowed to have any discussion outside of, of the courtroom, and and limited to just what's you know seen and heard in the courtroom. And so, uh, apparently, one juror violated that, and. Uh, in a high-profile case like this, you always have alternate jurors who may not and usually do not know that they won't get to deliberate. Um, and they, so they sit through all the evidence, they hear everything, they formulate their opinions, and just when crunch time comes and they get to go back and do their job, find out, oh, by the way, you're an alternate, you go to this other room and sit there by yourself <laughs> until the primary right. uh, jurors get their job done. Well, here, one of those alternates got now put into the 12 jurors will make the decision while uh, somebody who couldn't help but run their mouth um, got exposed for that and uh, has been dismissed.
3: It happens. Uh, They're warned and instructed by the judge not to go home and look at the trial on the internet or the nightly news, do any extra research, not do a crime visit scene on their own. I had a case one time where my client's uh, rationale for, and we had evidence that his front end of his automobile had significant wear and tear ball bearings. And that's what caused him to leave the roadway and subsequently caused an accident to be charged with DUI. And one of the jurors went home and brought in his Chilton's auto mechanic manual for that make and model of the automobile and explained to the other jurors in the room how that wasn't possible. Well, that was a mistrial. And and, um, now I will say quickly, uh, the scene view, the scene visit, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with doing it. I thought how the defense proposed it at the last minute, uh, a sort of, well, we're not, we don't know if the jury wants to do it. If they want to do it, we don't object to them doing it. If they'd like to do it, we'd like to do it too. And then the prosecutor's just standing there saying, you know, we're at the end of the trial. Now you're bringing this up. And the judge is sort of like, well, the jury hasn't asked us to go see the the scene. Do you want to do it or not? Make a motion. Uh, I thought it was sort of an oddball approach.
2: This is one of those fascinating cases, and I just—it's—it's it's hard to imagine being a juror and, and just having even the, the tiniest bit of intellectual curiosity, and—and and yet, you know, uh, having to self-sequester yourself from all outside sources of information because you can't turn on the TV, you can't look at any news source on the internet. This is the number one story everywhere. So, you know, you're—you're you're kind of forcing yourself to say, all right. I'm going to just uh, do crossword puzzles and read books here for the next month or two months, however long this trial takes, and put myself into that bubble. That's a lot to ask of people.
1: Especially with the uh, the cell phone. You know, I mean, it's right there in the palm of your hand, and you have notifications telling you every second what's happening around the world. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it, it would be difficult for sure. We'll leave it there. This is Your Day in Court on Extra 106.3 with Bruce Hagan and Ray Giudice. When we come back, University of Georgia standout Jalen Carter surrendered to police in Athens, Georgia, on Wednesday night this week on charges related to a crash that killed his teammate and team staffer after they celebrated a second national championship at UGA. That discussion next on your day in court on Extra 106.3.
4: Wade Ford. We are Atlanta's Ford dealer. This is your day in court with Bruce Hagan
1: and Ray Giudice on Extra 106.3. Welcome back to your day in court. The University of Georgia has a problem on their hands. Standout Jalen Carter surrendered to police in Athens uh, this past week on charges related to the crash that killed his teammate and staffer just hours after they celebrated the national championship back to back he's the number one or projected number one draft pick in next month's nfl draft he turned himself in in athens clark county on reckless driving and racing charges and that's according to the police records uh, was booked 11:33, was released at 11:49. if you recall devin willock a teammate and uh stafford chandler Lacroix was uh were killed in that january 15th crash so um I don't really know where to start with this because there's so many layers. He had been pulled over for apparently driving way too fast in Athens once before. There was body camera footage of that from the Athens to Police Department. So it's not like this is a very first time, but there's so many layers. Where do you begin, fellas?
2: I think we should begin by recognizing that this is a horrible tragedy, costing human life. Uh, human lives. And and that is just a terrible incident all around involving, you know, some really bad decisions made by some young people that had tragic consequences. And we can all agree about that. And we can all sort of get that out of the way to be able to have this sort of dispassionate discussion about what all this means from a legal standpoint, because this is a legal show. But, you know, I, I deal with car wreck cases with an emphasis on representing people on bicycles pedestrians, um, you know, people in wheelchairs. It's essentially what we call vulnerable road users. And more often than not, the the primary culprit, if it's not distracted or drunk driving, it's speed. And and at the heart of these charges against Jalen Carter and at the heart of what was going on here was just grossly excessive speed. And as it relates to Mr. Carter, clearly not the first time that he's had run-ins behind the wheel where he's been driving at a, crazy excessive speed um the one thing i really don't like in the way this story is being reported you know where we we live in a uh society where people don't necessarily take the time to get past the headline and the headlines are all that you know Jalen carter charged in connection with fatal crash and yeah there's a connection to the fatal crash but let's be realistic about it at least as we sit here today the charges against Jalen carter are misdemeanor traffic offenses. He's not charged with uh, being involved in the felony, uh, in a felony in any way. He's not charged with vehicular homicide, even a misdemeanor vehicle homicide. He's charged with speeding, reckless driving, racing. I'm not condoning it. Obviously I I said how much harm this causes, but at least as we sit here now, um, these are pretty simple charges that in the normal case even with an injury they go away you pay a fine you get points on your license if that and that's the end of it but ray uh you know certainly the opportunity here for this to morph into something much more significant and to tie into the pending criminal charges um definitely exists for
3: mr carter would you agree yes absolutely well of course there we may make sure that mr carter also is shrouded with the presumption of innocence. But, Bruce, what I'm thinking is that the prosecution, the investigators, have had more than enough time to carefully decide what charges they can prove and can't prove. This wasn't a rash, you know, 48 hours after this terrible incident happened is he arrested and overcharged or undercharged and charges are later upgraded. Uh, Seems to me... The investigators had a lot of evidence to sort of reverse engineer how this terrible track happened and who was involved up to what level. They knew where all the parties were at the bar. They knew what time they left. They knew what time the accident happened. There's probably multiple video cameras, ring cameras, nest cameras, bank cameras, security cameras showing these two vehicles at excessive speeds. You've got witnesses on the road calling in. And don't forget, we have two survivors, thank goodness, in the back seat of uh, LaCro- the vehicle Ms. LaCroix was operating. So they put the case together and somebody made the decision that more serious felony charges, vehicular homicide, to which reckless driving and racing are often the predicates Too, We normally think that you have to have a DUI driving under the influence charge or drugs charge to have a vehicle homicide charge, but often it can be racing, excessive speed, reckless driving. So I believe that decision at a very high level, meaning computers, the DA, the solicitor's office, move forward on these misdemeanors. Uh, I I would venture to say that Mr. Carter, if he hasn't had counsel, he will have counsel, but I'll bet he's had some advice. Uh, Turned himself in when requested, was booked in, booked out. He'll go to state court in Clark uh, Athens, Clark County, and he'll enter some sort of a plea or not guilty plea to these charges. That's his right to do so. And uh, they are misdemeanors. And I don't see them being upgraded. I can't imagine any further evidence coming out that would change a prosecutor's mind.
2: Well, one thing that um, came out during the course of this is that um, Jalen Carter apparently gave very different stories to investigators um, at different times in the investigation. So initially, um, apparently was there, saw the crash and left, but told the investigators he had not been there. Then there was another statement to the investigators. uh, um, I was following behind their car. I saw them, they were about a mile ahead of me. Then there was another statement of being alongside of the car at another time. So, you know, he's giving multiple statements um, to investigators who are investigating a crash with two people killed. If that rises to the level of um, giving a false statement to a police officer, potentially that's a charge that could be brought against him. That's something that has certainly more than up to five years jail time. So he could face that charge. That, that again, does not make him liable on the underlying uh, vehicular homicide, if there is one to be brought. He wasn't driving the car. But, you know, it, it's it's a situation where, where, where his actions, some that are so closely tied to the racing, to the excessive speed, maybe even to the drinking that went on beforehand, that it's going to somehow entangle him from a criminal standpoint in the vehicular homicide. I also think it opens up the door to civil... Uh, charges against him. Um, Chandler LaCroix's family, she's the one who was driving the vehicle at the time, um, is in a different situation because she's driving than that of the family of Devin Willock, who was a passenger in that car. Um, And I understand there was a friendship between Devin Willock and Jalen Carter. They were teammates and friends. But the decision on what to do with a wrongful death case. Uh, is with Devin Willock's family. And you don't know what relationship there is there. And I assume that they're looking at every imaginable angle of where they may go to see, you know, what sort of remedies are available in the civil justice system that would include not just a claim against Ms. LaCroix and her family and insurance or whatever she may have, but also the university. And now you have to think also potentially Jalen Carter, who, although there may not be any criminal liability, could certainly be a co-defendant in a civil case with some civil liability to the parties who were uh, killed or injured.
3: Well, Bruce, I agree with you. There is potential exposure for either a obstruction of justice for the inconsistent statements. And as you wisely point out, if those inconsistent statements were made under oath, that is perjury, which is a felony. But again, Prosecution was aware of these inconsistent statements, and it's not like prosecutors to undercharge. It's just not. Uh, there may have been a deal. We don't know. Now I would add another wrinkle to the civil liability. Somebody or bodies or bars or strip clubs poured enough liquor into Miss LaCroix that her toxicology, her blood alcohol content, was point one nine seven, I believe, which is uh, at least yes. 197. We're in an 0.08 world. So 089.6. So she's more than twice the lead for a drunk driver, DUI driver in the state of Georgia at the time of her blood, the blood. Uh, so we have talked on other shows about what ramp top liability. Uh, that's a lot of alcohol for anybody at all. But I don't know what Ms. Candler's uh, body weight was, what was in her stomach at the time but that's not three, four beers at the sit and sip, a lot of alcohol. Yeah, that's a great point.
2: And and dram shop liability is the area of law that says that the the facility that serves uh, alcohol to somebody who then goes out and drives drunk and causes injuries may be subject to to their own liability separate from that of the drunk driver. Um, That's another area that certainly would be looked into here. You know, these are why, Examples like this are why it's so important for the families of folks who were killed, but even if you're just seriously injured, um, why it's so important for these people to get a lawyer on their side involved really early on. Because you know, I mean, from the moment this happened, University of Georgia had somebody out on the scene trying to manage this situation that night. Um, You can be sure that every single place along the way is doing whatever they can do to protect themselves if and when they get um, called in on this for any sort of exposure. And so um, we always contact businesses that please preserve your video, right? Please preserve all of your records of uh, credit card receipts from um, customers that night and um, tabs. And you know we want the names of all the people who were working there that night, all this stuff. And yet, um, <laughs> if, if you wait two months, to send those sort of letters out suddenly you get back a response we're so sorry but this stuff was routinely destroyed in the ordinary course of our uh our business which is to destroy anything that might be potentially harmful to us um, so yeah you do want to get those things out really early on in the process and and uh you know there, there's also and getting back to carter's potential criminal liability. The folks who are making this decision, Ray, and and people within the prosecutor's office, while they are committed to justice, this is also um, happening in Athens, Georgia. And it's happening on the eve of some of the greatest celebrations that Athens, Georgia has ever seen related to -to back-to-back national championships for their football team in a town where football is king beyond anything else imaginable. So you're asking this prosecutor to go ahead and charge local hero uh, in in the most aggressive manner you could possibly charge somebody uh, as opposed to, hey, how can we still fulfill our obligation and duty to the public, but do it in a way that doesn't taint the legacy of the Georgia Bulldogs? Um, That you're asking quite a lot, I think, of a a local Athens-Clarke County prosecutor.
1: What does it mean for the University of Georgia? What do you, how do you see this playing out for UGA? Does it, does it mean they're going to take new steps and, and implement new protocols for people that are driving players around or, or where they can go, when they can go? How, how do you see that shaking out?
3: Well, you can see by the uh, very brief responses by both the uh, athletic director and uh, the coaching staff, Coach Smart, Very short, succinct, probably scripted by legal counsel. They're circling the wagons. This will be a big lawsuit. Despite plaintiff's counsel, maybe a month or so going, everything's going to work out. It's not going to be just worked out. There's too much liability. I'm with Bruce. I believe that Mr. Carter will wind up as a defendant in the civil lawsuit. If for tactical reasons only. Uh, Meaning, you have him as a defendant, a party to the suit. He can be deposed, cross examined, answered interrogatory questions. We can get into his cell phone records, pursue perhaps. This lucrative contract that he's about to sign, and other other uh, financial rewards, or even just contributing to a settlement financially. So I think he's going to be in. It's going to ex- this case is going to expand to include probably the bar or bars where alcohol was served. And I believe, as I was a plaintiff's lawyer on this case, I would probably try to bring in University of Georgia itself, whether it's whether you sue the Regents system or the state. Bruce would be much more knowledgeable about that. Because again, I want everybody in the pool, both for litigation strategy purposes, evidence purposes and financial contribution to the settlement of this claim.
2: Sure. And Tug, so your question as, you know, how this affects the university and any policies going forward, the school has taken the position that Ms. LaCroix was acting outside the scope and duties of her employment as uh, somebody working in the recruiting office. And has also taken the position that she did not have permission to use this school-provided vehicle for the purposes for which she was driving that night. Now, my experience tells me that when I hear things like this from defendants, and it comes up in the context of other employers, it comes up in the context of trucking companies, transportation companies, any kind of business, I start digging to see, all right, well, I hear what you're saying. Show me where that policy is existing in writing and where that written policy has been communicated to these employees. Tell you, it's something like eight or nine times out of 10, it does not exist, and there is no policy. And it's just something that, while seeming to make sense to people, has never been expressed out loud to an employee in any meaningful way. And in fact, almost the opposite has been expressed. When you get into discovery in this instance, that will really get fleshed out. You know, where is it in writing? Show me exactly where in your employee handbook uh, it defines what the job duties are of this recruiting specialist. Show me in the employee handbook where it says what the limitations are in the use of this vehicle um, and, and other similar sorts of things like that. And right. if those things don't exist, well, you're asking what's going to happen in the aftermath of this. They will exist going forward. You will see some very clearly defined job duties, very clearly defined limitations on what a person does that is considered within the course and scope of their job working for the athletic department versus outside the lines. And, and that matters because the employer is going to be liable for the actions of the employee if it's something that's within the course and scope of their job. Now. I know I'm rambling here, but you may look at this incident and say that, come on, how can this be the course and scope of a recruiting assistant's job duties at 2.30 in the morning, driving around a guy who's already on the team, going to an adult entertainment club and a Waffle House? How is that possibly within her job description? But my position on this is that the transfer portal has changed what it means to be recruited, and that while historically recruiting used to be limited to just trying to encourage high school kids to come to your school. Now, knowing that every player on your team is a free agent every single year, your recruiting efforts have to expand to keeping the guys who are already on your roster in the program. And Kirby Smart has been very vocal about how important that is to Georgia's success. So for me, if I'm arguing this case against the um, university saying that, yes, this is within the course and scope of of Ms. LaCroix's job duties, like. You're darn right. When she's entertaining this star player and keeping that player from entering the transfer portal, she is doing her job as somebody working for the recruiting
3: staff. Well, additionally, we would get into the pattern of use by Miss LaCroix of this or other UGA vehicles. Uh, Were they aware, had she been taking the vehicle home, uh, done personal errands, drove a professor down to the airport or a player? how expansive was this was this a uh, mr croix you need to go get vehicle number seven drive from point a to point B come back hang up the keys make sure there's gas in it thank you uh you know you're gonna see and I I venture to say and I think Bruce is absolutely right that there was some very loose controls over the use of the university vehicles especially in dealing with with the star athletes and the star system. It wouldn't be the first set of rules uh, that any university has bent uh, to keep an athlete happy. I think the university is going to have a difficult problem. I understand their legal theory, and they're going to get their opportunity, I believe, to try to prevail on what's called the summary judgment. Judge, we don't belong in this case, and this is why. And that's going to be a fascinating part of this litigation.
2: Yeah, and of course, you know, Ray and I, thinking the way we think, We're just assuming that this is going to head towards litigation. I know that early on in in this, there was a press conference scheduled with the father of the player who was killed, uh, and it was being held by, you know, one of his lawyers, which was, man, the name escapes me right now, but it was something like big money lawyer, big money law firm.
3: Right.
2: Uh, and then that press conference was canceled and the father released a statement that said, the school's been very good to me or to us. And you know, we're not doing anything. Well, that was the statement certainly within two days after this incident occurred. And so, you know, has the family of Devin Willock uh, made other plans since then or had other discussions? You know, Ray and I come from this from a different perspective, and the name of this show, as we know, is Your Day in Court, so we're anticipating that that's where this goes, um, but it may never get there, uh, and and it could go away quietly, but it's not going to be confidential because this is a public university. Um, I suppose, Ray, that it's such a strange world we live in when it comes to these college athletes now that... Maybe there's potential for this thing to go away, that somehow the same fabricated entities that exist to pay players' name, image, and licensing money could be used to pay off a claim ask somebody to waive that claim against the university, even though the money comes from seemingly a private source, but really donor money. It's the wild, wild west when it comes to college kids getting money now. So who's to say that
3: that couldn't be done? Well, the problem with there, and this is probably getting into the weeds, but you wouldn't doing that might not lead to a full and final settlement with consideration exchange between between all of the parties. Does that make sense? In other words- You, know, you got you'd still be just because the the boosters paid paid the family a bunch of you know compensation that's not a release to the other parties i mean there's a pool of money that if you don't bring in the university and if you don't bring in the the bar or strip club or liquor store or whomever served uh miss lacroix all this alcohol or or somebody's house party then they're not going to willingly tender it i've never had a dram shop case where a restaurant or a bar or a liquor store voluntarily tended their policy limits ever,
2: <laughs> and the way the law works now, if this case went forward and you did not have all potentially liable parties included in the case, um, we have a, a, a very complicated scheme of apportionment of fault, and it can you know fault can even be apportioned to to, to a person or entity that's not a party to the lawsuit. So, so if you said, well, we're not going to sue whoever, uh, you know, we're gonna we're gonna sue the university. We're not gonna sue the bar where they were drinking. The university could say that, hey, you've left out an essential party here, and that party has a percentage of the liability here. And then the university, in defending the case, goes about trying to put some blame on uh, the plate in the restaurant under under a dram shop theory. So it it gets complicated too and it's another reason um, why you see these sort of expansive uh, cases filed where seemingly everybody under the sun is named as a defendant
1: there are so many layers to this onion that we'll leave it here on your day in court and we'll have to come back and revisit it as the uh, the the lawsuits are filed or or not filed and discuss it maybe do a ray and bruce were right because you typically are and that's the reason it's so much fun to listen to this show because you get insight that you don't get anywhere else if you ever miss an episode get it wherever you download your podcast any of the podcast platforms it will be there for you just search for your day in court with bruce Hagen and ray judice when we come back couple sues a fertility clinic alleging the wrong sperm was used to impregnate the wife uh-oh seems like it'd be a difficult with a lot of layers too we'll discuss it next on your day in court on extra 106.3
4: Wade Ford. We are Atlanta's Ford dealer. This is your day in court with
1: Bruce Hagan and Ray Judice on Extra 106.3. Welcome back. Final segment of your day in court. We'll introduce you to Ray and Bruce and how you can get a hold of them. If you ever need their assistance after this segment, when we talk about this couple, they're suing a fertility clinic alleging, that the wrong sperm was used to inseminate the wife. It's happened out in Texas. It's a uh, lawsuit against the fertility clinic and the associated laboratories that their children are not full biological children because the wrong sperm was used. Holy smokes. Have you ever seen anything like this before, Bruce?
2: Well, this is an unusual case, but um, when Ray and I were in law school, and I assume it's still taught today, there's there's a concept you learn in your first year torts class called race ipsiloquitur. And I know I always give Ray a hard time about all his <laughs> fancy Emory Law School Latin terminology, but race ipsiloquitur, which means that the thing speaks for itself. And, and essentially you're saying that all the proof that I need to establish negligence exists in that this even happened, right? Like the, the idea that I'm going to, uh, or, or somebody's gonna go and donate their eggs to be fertilized by the spouse's sperm, um, and then a child is born that clearly either didn't come from that egg or didn't utilize that sperm based on DNA testing. You say that that's really all the proof we need of your negligence because how else could this possibly have happened? The thing speaks for itself. So, so yeah, it, it's really shocking. And, and the way it came up in this case, um, parents took, there were, there were two children, and the parents took the kids to a regular um, pediatrician visit. And the pediatrician noticed a birthmark of some sort on one or both of the kids, and then asked the parents, like, which of you has uh, Asian descent? Because this type of birthmark is only found in Asian uh, people. And so they said, well, neither one of us. And though that that then led to DNA testing, which revealed that these, you know, the child was, I think, 100% from the mother, zero percent chance from the father. Oh, wow. Um, and I think really the challenge here is to figure out, okay. Knowing that this is negligence and knowing that the lab or the facility screwed this up, what what is the means of calculating the appropriate dollar amount of damages? Meaning, you know, to, what does it take to make this couple whole for the harm that was caused?
3: The problem is also is the dad the legal biological parent of the children? He he's not his DNA, uh, is he? Is he really their father? And now he may. Does he have to institute adoption procedures just because his name's on the birth certificate? If it's not his DNA from his sperm, uh, the law or a life insurance company or other benefits might be declined. So there's issues there. Uh, The second issue from if I'm the lawyer for this uh, fertility clinic, I would say we need to cut a check quietly, quickly, so that we'll get future clients because I can't imagine the level of damage to the medical facility, the medical professionals involved uh, on future cases. I mean, who would use this facility in the future? So...
2: Yeah. And if you've ever either been through this yourself or have known people who have gone through um, you know, these types of matters, you're talking about folks who are typically incredibly emotional, fra- emotionally fragile because they've tried to have children and, and can't do it successfully and want to have children so badly that they go to the extent of paying an enormous sum of money to have this in vitro fertilization procedure done um, so that they can experience the joy and and the wonder of being parents, you know? And so it's, it's, you're dealing with folks who are in an incredibly vulnerable position to begin with. And there's such trust involved here that, you know, that's completely gone. And in fact, I just don't know how they even recover the publicity that came out about this
3: yeah i I, i'm surprised that this matter made it to litigation uh again uh, as you say bruce this is a this is a case that even one of the billboard law firms could probably prevail (laughs) you know or or try to settle quick uh and uh but you know you've got target doctors you've got you may have a and and bruce can elaborate on this uh doctors don't ever like to admit they made a mistake. And even more so, their medical malpractice insurance carriers really never want to admit that a mistake was made. And so there may have been an effort on this couple to try to settle and resolve this claim that uh, the doctors and their insurance carriers declined the settlement and said, come take us to court. And I think Bruce does have a really interesting uh, spin on this is what is the dollar amount of damages? This is not something that can be fixed. Uh, It's not like, you know, you have a a bad back and you had surgery and now compensation, money compensation is going to allow you to have a a extra physical therapy, a a whirlpool in the backyard to get healthy, a special vehicle in the house or, or accommodations in the house to help you get up and down the steps. Nothing fixes this problem. Uh It just, they're not, you know, you this is, this is a multi-generational uh, injury. Uh These kids, these d- young adults are going to, they're going to want to get married and have kids. And what's the family tree? Um My dad, uh, the Italian side of the family, the Giudice side looks like an extra in the Sopranos. <laughs> my mom is, you know, German Dutch, blonde hair, blue eyed. Uh, I came out with you know, a big schlock of red hair, as did my younger brother and sister. <laughs> so, you know, there was a lot, there was no DNA testing going on back then. My, my parents just had to put up with us. Uh, and of all the uh, the comments that were made about the milkman and the.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, I know that they, they must be proud of you. There's no doubt about it. They, they would have to be they proud put of you up
3: with it somehow, some way. That's yeah. right.
1: That's right. Now, if folks need your help, and, and we'll cover this more as as more comes out about the case, because I think this is one of those that's going to get a lot of attention. So we'll we'll continue to cover it as we uh, do uh, other cases here on your day in court. But in case folks need to get a hold of you and they need representation like no other that they can get in the city of Atlanta or the state of Georgia or across the country, Bruce, how do people get you?
2: Uh, the listeners can contact me on my cell phone, 404-202-2233. You can also email me, bruce, at hagan-law.com at Peep's Lawyer on most social media
1: platforms and ray uh with all of your detail about what you look like where you came from <laughs> how do folks get you
3: yeah the, the red hair is faded but i'm i'm available 404-964-4185 now located in roswell just a couple blocks from downtown roswell which is really thriving it's, it's amazing how These what we used to call small towns on the outside of the perimeter have just blossomed into big cities now uh, with all of the the good things that cities have and not quite as many of the bad things yet. So 404-964-4185. Call me or text me on myself.
1: We don't have any small cities around Atlanta anymore, do we? I mean, every every city's gigantic, it seems anyway, because so many people are moving here in droves.
3: Well, I moved to Atlanta, Decatur in 1978, and it was a small town. And Atlanta now runs from Macon to Athens, essentially. No kidding. From
1: uh, yeah, you know, there, there's even thought that in the next few you know, several years that Atlanta Metro runs all the way up to the Tennessee line up toward Chattanooga. So, uh, man, I'm I'm hoping we don't grow quite that fast, or or I find me a little place to uh, get away from some of the big big city because I I don't definitely don't want to live in a gigantic city. But I will tell you, in cities, you sometimes run into legal issues. If you need legal help, the experts that you listen to on this show are the people to call get those numbers find them on social media get the help that you need when you're in a legal pickle with bruce hagan or ray judice the best in the business that'll do it for us on your day in court y'all make it a great day
4: Go to FirstHorizon.com slash John. First Horizon Bank member FDIC.